Well, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. As you know, we are currently in a sermon series by which we are considering selected psalms for the next uh, a few months or so. And so today we will be focusing our attention upon Psalm 16. Please turn your attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word, Psalm 16. A victim of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand our pleasures forevermore. Well, thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. And this morning, I'm also going to read a portion from the New Testament. Uh, You don't need to turn there. You can just listen along as I read a portion of Peter's sermon from Pentecost, which comes to us from Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 32. And listen here, especially to how the apostle Peter utilizes this psalm. So Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 32. The Apostle Peter says to those gathered in Jerusalem on Pentecost, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken." Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. 
Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, a few weeks ago, we finished our consideration of the Gospel of Luke, and we spent some time in Luke chapter 24. Now, in Luke chapter 24, Luke gives us a glimpse into how Jesus spent that first Easter Sunday with his disciples. And among many things that Jesus did with his disciples in that first Easter Sunday, the highlight was Jesus giving the greatest expository sermon ever preached. He opened up the law, the prophets, and the Psalms and showed how the entire Old Testament is focused upon him. Now, we don't know exactly which passages Jesus considered, which passages from the law, the prophets, and the Psalms that he particularly pointed to to prove this principle. But he may, he may have exposited Psalm 16. Now, why do I say that? When we look at the preaching in the book of Acts, we see, especially in that first sermon, which is given by Peter on Pentecost, Peter goes to Psalm 16 to prove, to show that Jesus really did rise from the dead. More than that, Paul in Acts chapter 13 also uh, cites Psalm 16 as proof of the resurrection of Christ. And so we know that Psalm 16 was highly regarded among the apostles. Now, why was it highly regarded? Well, it may have been highly regarded because it was one of those passages that Jesus exposited in Luke chapter 24. Now, we don't know for sure, but at the very least, we know that Psalm 16 was a very important psalm for the early church and for the apostolic preaching that we witness in the book of Acts. And so as we approach this psalm, we also should highly regard this psalm for us in our Christian lives. Now, you'll notice that the heading of Psalm 16 attributes this psalm to David, a victim of David. Peter also, in that passage in Acts chapter 2, attributes this psalm to David. Now, this psalm has been attributed, or, uh, described as a psalm of confidence. A psalm of confidence. Now, when we speak about confidence in our day-to-day -day life, when we think about confidence in our ordinary experience, we know that we all fall somewhere on the meter of confidence. Uh, some, some of us are, are less confident, meaning some of us are more prone to, to fear, to anxiety. Some of us are, are more self-conscious. We're more aware of how other people are perceiving us at any given moment. Some of us are more weighed down and stressed out by the unknowns and uncertainties of this life. Others of us are more confident. Uh, we generally don't struggle with anxiety. We generally don't get stressed out about the unknowns of life. We, we have a, a relatively high view of our talents, our abilities, and who we are. Now, when we speak about people being more or less confident, we are speaking about people being more or less confident in themselves. We oftentimes speak 
about how so-and-so just needs to believe in themselves a little bit more, or so-and-so is really confident in who they are. Now, this psalm, insofar as it is a psalm of confidence, is not calling those of you who struggle with confidence to have a higher self-esteem. Nor is this calling those of you who are generally pretty confident and saying that you're doing pretty well. Keep at it. Rather, this psalm is calling all of us, no matter where we land on the spectrum of confidence, to forsake ourselves and to find our confidence in the Lord. This psalm is not calling us to boost our self-esteem, but rather calling us to esteem the Lord, to find our confidence in him. The psalm is a psalm of confidence. Now, verse 9, in many ways, is a wonderful summary of, of this psalm. Notice how David says, My flesh dwells securely. David is expressing his confidence in the Lord to preserve him, to keep him, to protect him. This confidence of David then overflows into joy and delight as he says, My whole being rejoices and my heart is glad. Now the first eight verses is David expressing his confidence in the Lord to keep his flesh in his earthly life. So it's David's confidence in the Lord to keep him in terms of his earthly life. And then verses uh, 9 through 11, particularly 10 and 11, is David expressing his confidence in the Lord to keep him in and through death. So you have Jesus, uh, David's confidence in the Lord in his earthly life, and then David's confidence in the Lord in and through death which concludes the psalm. And so those are the two main points that I want us to, to consider this morning. David's confidence in the Lord and the realm of his earthly life. And then David's confidence in the Lord in and through death. Now this psalm begins with a strong note of confidence by David. David expresses his confidence in the Lord's preservation or protection. Look with me at verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. What a wonderful prayer. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. How often we take for granted the Lord's sustenance in our life. How often we lay our head down at night without a thought to the Lord's preserving grace. How often do we Lay our head on the pillow asking that the Lord would not only be the Lord of our labor, but also the Lord of our rest. How often do we ask that the Lord during the night would free us from anxieties and doubts and temptations and that he would continue to work his sanctifying grace within us? How often do we awake in the morning asking that the Lord would continue to keep us? Ask us that the Lord would give us the ability of cognition and reason the ability to move, to walk, to breathe. These are things that we so often take for granted. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. One of the reasons why I believe Jesus commands us to ask for our daily bread, or to put it another way, ask for daily common provisions, provisions that we so easily take for granted, 
is not only that because prayer is powerful, not only because God hears our prayers, but also because the very act of praying for our daily bread reminds us that God is the author of providence. That God is the author, or God is the one who provides all that we need. I love how our Heidelberg Catechism exposits this fourth petition. It says that when we pray this fourth petition, asking that the Lord would provide for our daily bread, what we're, what we're essentially saying is that without God's blessing, neither our care and labor nor his gift would profit us. Think about that. Without God's blessing, neither our care and labor nor his gift would profit us. What this is saying is that God not only provides us daily bread, but he provides in such a way that he allows our bodies to draw nutrients from that bread. It's not a given that we eat and we sleep and that's actually effective for us in our lives. He's the one who allows us to receive these gifts in a way that benefits us, in a way that allows us to continue on in our life so that we can do his will. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And we are called to find our confidence and refuge in God as the the one who provides our daily bread. Well, notice how David continues. And he continues by expressing his confidence and delight in the Lord as the giver of all good things. He says, the second half of verse 1, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now David here is saying that when he looks out upon all of the good things in his life, all the blessings in his life, God is his highest good. God is his greatest blessing. But not only that, he is saying, I have no good apart from you. David is acknowledging that God is the giver of all good things. Every blessing he enjoys and receives in his life finds its origin in God. Think of, of James's words when he says that all good things come down from the Father of lights, from whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. David recognizes God is the giver, the giver of all good things, and he continues on this note in verses 5 and 6, when he says these quite memorable verses, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now these these terms that, that David uses, these terms of portion, lot, boundary lines, inheritance, David here is thinking about the land of Canaan. David, who, as he's writing this psalm, likely is king in this promised land, this land that was promised the patriarch Abraham. And so he's he's intentionally uh, referring here to that great blessing that God gave to the people of Israel. This land flowing with, with milk and honey, this blessed land. When Israel inherited this promised land, uh, we learn that each tribe, each family inherited a certain portion of this land. They had an allotment of, of this land. And this land represented sustenance and provision and life. It was God's blessing upon his people. 
And so David, as he's writing verses 5 and 6, he's, he's acknowledging this, this immense blessing that God has poured out into not only his life, but the, life of, the lives of his covenant people. Now, when we consider our reception of God's blessings, our reception of God's gifts, there are two big temptations that we face. On the one hand, we are tempted to worship the gift and forget about the giver. This is essentially what we heard in the reading of the law. This is idolatry. When we worship the gift and we forget about the giver. In fact, this is what Israel did with the land of Canaan. They enjoyed a measure of prosperity. They enjoyed being this great nation, this nation that was as numerous as the stars of the heaven. But what did they do in their prosperity? They forgot the Lord their God. Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah says that the priests... Uh, they did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Israel worshipped the gift. They forgot about the giver. And we too are, are tempted in, in, in that same way to to. To, to latch on to these gifts and think of them as an end in themselves. Now, if that's one side of the ditch, what's the other side of the ditch? What's the other temptation that we face in the reception of God's gifts and blessings? Well, it's really the opposite. It's almost to despise the gifts out of a desire not to fall into idolatry. You know, this is when we we begin to feel a little bit guilty if we're enjoying these earthly common blessings a little too much because then that might mean we have forsaken our first love. That enjoyment of God's blessings here on earth are somehow incompatible with a true love and enjoyment of God. Now, David shows us the middle of the road. If those are the two ditches, David shows us here the middle of the road. Notice, notice how David here receives God's blessings with open arms, with gratitude and thanksgiving. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. He's likely thinking of, of this land of Canaan, this promised land, this initial fulfillment of that covenant that God made with Abraham. But then David goes on and he says, you, O Lord, are my portion and my cup. He's not saying the land of Canaan is his ultimate portion. God is his portion. He, when he thinks about the land of Canaan, when he enjoy, enjoys the blessings of, of this land, it causes him to raise his mind to God as the giver of all good things. David views God's gifts as a means of worshiping and enjoying God himself. And so let me ask you, how do you receive God's blessings in your life? What is your relationship with God's blessings in your life? Do you worship them? Do you treasure them? Do you esteem them higher than the Lord your God? Do you despise them? Do you begin to feel guilty when you are enjoying them a little too much? Or do you receive them with gratitude and view them as a means of, of praising and enjoying God who delights to pour down gifts upon upon his people. Well, David also 
as he's speaking about his life here on earth, expresses confidence and even delight in the Lord's instruction. So we see David saying, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. Now the Lord gives us counsel in many different ways. He uses many different avenues to to give us counsel. David here is referencing one of those avenues. He says, in the night also my heart instructs me. Now here David is referring to how the law of God is written upon our hearts. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, that both Jew and Gentile, all image bearers of God, have God's law written, implanted, stamped upon their heart. God's law, which is written upon our heart, then bears witness to us through our conscience. Paul says that our conscience either accuses us or excuses us. Now we know that as those who partake of our first parents' fall into sin, we have to uphold two realities. Due to God's common grace, he preserves a remnant of this law which is written upon our hearts, and thus we, through our conscience, can come to a real knowledge of God's moral standards. But at the same time, we know that our heart is deceitful beyond all measure. And at times, our conscience seeks to corrupt and twist that law of God for our own ends and purposes. And so this is why it's so important that we vet, that we check this instruction of the heart with the other objective avenues that the Lord gives us to counsel us. And what are those other avenues? Well, the primary way in which the Lord counsels us is through his written word. Remember what we considered a couple weeks ago in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who meditates upon the law or the instruction of the Lord night and day. We are to test the desires of our heart with the principles of Scripture. And if the desires of our heart contradict the principles of Scripture, then it's probably a pretty good indicator that that desire is evidence of the corruption of our hearts. Well, the other avenue that God gives us to vet and check the desires of our heart or the instruction of our heart is through the advice and counsel of the covenant community. Look with me at verse 2. David says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. David here is expressing his, his joy and his delight in the covenant community of God. David delights in the fact that he is not a lone ranger follower of Yahweh. He delights in the fact that he belongs to a people. He belongs to a covenant community. And what's one of the blessings and benefits of belonging to a covenant community? Well, the wisdom of many counselors. Not only does, do we have pastors, elders, but we have people older in the faith who've walked with the Lord many, many more years than, than we have. We have those who have similar experiences as we do. We have those who have different experiences than, than we have had. And, and all of these many different individuals in our churches, in our covenant communities, benefit us 
in the advice that they can give us, the instruction that they can give us. And therefore, one of the ways in which we vet the instruction of our heart is through the advice and counsel of those within our churches, those within the community of faith. Now, one phrase that, that's, quite often, that's quite often used in, in Christian circles today, especially when someone is, is weighing a, a pretty big, momentous decision in their life, is um, oftentimes people will say, You know, I feel that the Lord is leading me, leading me to do X, Y, or Z. Now, oftentimes, what they mean when they use this phrase, the Lord is leading me to do X, Y, or Z, they're referring to this internal instruction of the heart. They have some feeling inside of them, some inclination inside of them that that the Lord is, is calling them to pursue a particular course of action. Now, there's nothing objectively wrong with that phrase, but I think oftentimes when that phrase is used, it, it, uh, it's used with a certain hierarchy of, of the Lord's counsel. Oftentimes, I think when people use this, they use it as sort of, of a trump card to all the other avenues of the Lord's counsel, as if the Lord has somehow given me this experience, this feeling, and in some sense spoken to me, and really it doesn't matter what Scripture says, it doesn't matter what other people say, I need to follow this desire, otherwise I am disobeying God. The Lord is leading me to do X, Y, or Z. It betrays a certain understanding of the hierarchy of the Lord's counsel, whereby this instruction of the heart is number one. But that's not what we see in Scripture. In Scripture, we see that the Lord does indeed instruct our heart. We do have the law of God written upon our hearts, but because we are still those who are sinners, who have deceitful hearts, it can be hard for us to discern whether our desires, whether the instruction of the heart is indeed a valid testimony of the law of God written upon our hearts or evidence of the corruption deceit of our hearts. And therefore, therefore we need to vet and check the desires of our hearts with these two objective avenues of the Lord's counsel, which is the principles of Scripture and the advice of the covenant community. So that if we feel like the Lord is calling us to a particular course of action and it contradicts the principles of Scripture, everybody in our life, the godly people in our life, um, don't agree with us, there's probably a pretty good indication that feeling is not from the Lord. Boys and girls, as you continue to mature, as you continue to grow, as you enter high school and, and beyond, you will increasingly have more decisions to make. And as you grow older, you will gain more and more independence in these decisions. And you will have strong feelings and desires over uh, these decisions that you will have to think about in in the years to come. And what this is telling us then, what God's word is telling us here, is that, yes, your, your feelings have some merit, but you need to vet those desires of the heart with the principles of scripture, with the advice of your parents, your pastor, your elders, other people within the church. And that is meant to help you make an informed decision. So David here expresses, he expresses his confidence in the Lord's preservation of, of his life, daily provision. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. He expresses confidence in the Lord as the giver of all good things. He expresses confidence in the Lord to instruct him and guide him and lead him as the king of God's people. But we also see at the conclusion of this psalm that David expresses confidence in the Lord to keep him in and through death. And so when we look at verses 9 through 11, 
we need to ask ourselves, are these things truly, are these things true of David? As we read in verse 9, which I, I referenced earlier, did God really keep David's flesh secure always? Did God not let David's body ever see corruption? Remember what Peter said in Acts chapter 2, that passage which I read earlier. Peter told us that these verses, verses 9, 10, 11, are ultimately verses about Christ. And when David was writing these verses, he was acting as a prophet, speaking about his greater son who was to come. Peter said, David's body is still in his tomb and is with us to this day. His body has decayed. It's seen corruption. And therefore, David here is speaking about the true son of David, who is the only human being who was able to conquer death and hell as he rose victoriously from the grave on Easter Sunday. And therefore, David can have confidence in and through death not because of what he is able to do, but because he has in mind his greater future son who he would know would conquer death on resurrection day. So this shows us that our God is a God who, who doesn't just care for our souls, but our God is a God who cares for our bodies as well. He cares for our bodies not only in this age, but we know that in this age our bodies will decay. Our bodies will see corruption as, as they will go to the grave, but we know that we have that hope of a future resurrection from the dead. When all of us here will be raised with bodies incorruptible, that's our hope. And that hope is completely tethered, tied, grounded in Jesus' resurrection. Now since we, this month, have the privilege of witnessing a number of, of baptisms, I'd like to connect this point to the sacraments. The sacraments are important. The sacraments are, are part of the means of grace that the Lord has given us to preserve us in this life. And one of the purposes for God giving us the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper is to continue to strengthen our confidence in the hope of Christ's resurrection. So think about baptism. When you witnessed uh, the baptisms last week, when you Witness the baptisms next week, Lord willing. This should remind you of how Christ was crucified in the waters of God's judgment. But also should remind you of how Christ on Easter Sunday rose victoriously from the waters of those judgment, of, of, of that judgment as he conquered death and hell. Baptism then should renew our confidence and hope and this resurrection of the dead. Think about the Lord's Supper. Jesus tells his disciples when he institutes the sacred meal that he will not again sup with his people until that, the, the age to come, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Indeed, he says that every time we partake of this holy meal, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And thus, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we should call to mind that hope of that day when we will be seated at the banquet table with Christ our husband. If you look with me at verse 11, uh, the psalmist, or David says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence 
There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is ultimately a reference to the age to come when we are seated at the marriage banquet of the Lamb. On that day, we will be experiencing this reality. Fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And thus, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are renewing our confidence in this great hope we have at the age to come when we will once again be physically present with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, congregation of Christ, uh, for those of us who are here today who are fearful, fearful over physical well-being, fearful over temporal provisions and needs, fearful over big decisions that, that we have to make, fearful over death itself, Psalm 16 is calling you not to find refuge in yourself, but calling you to find refuge and confidence in the Lord who promises to care for you, not only in this life, but also in the life to come. So let us pray. Merciful Father, we thank you for the encouragement that we can draw from uh, your word, and particularly from Psalm 16. We thank you that we are not called to find our confidence in ourselves. We're not called uh, to be the self-sovereigns of our life. We thank you that you call us uh, to find our refuge in you. And we know that you are a safe refuge. You are a sure